Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in to what is a very special episode of The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, Director of News at The Block, and I'm joined by Jay Biancamano, Head of Digital Assets at State Street. He is joining us from the great state of New Jersey. Jay has had his finger on the pulse of trading world capital markets for not going to give away exactly how many years, but in the decades, few decades, and trading has changed a lot, right? Whether it's regulations like Reg NMS yep. impacting the markets or technology, right? So exactly. high frequency trading and the like. And Jay penned an interesting piece, or rather was interviewed for an interesting piece penned by Ben Jessel, a contributor at Forbes, where he laid out the key trends he sees digital assets impacting trading and capital markets. And so we're going to we're going to dive into that, but broadly speaking, the thesis here is blockchain technology, digital assets are going to impact many different corners of the market in a similar way that electronic trading impacted the market decades ago. Exactly. You know, this conversation rose out of a discussion I had internally. I'll mention Nick Delacaris who runs our electronic trading at State Street, and we were talking about, you know, where do we think the market is evolving, right? What do digital assets mean for trading? Uh, going forward. And, you know, if you look back on how things evolved in the last 20 years and where we are right now in trading, you know, for the most part, we're electronic. I think uh, the last bastion of electronic trading, as I mentioned in the article, is fixed income trading, right? You know, we had market access, which came out in the mid 90s. But I think right now we're about, I think according to Greenwich Associates, about a little over 34% of the market is electronically traded in fixed income. But it's electronic trading. It's fixed-based trading. It's messaging. But what we're really talking about now is digital assets. What does digital trading mean? And that's the conversations we're having right now because you know Bitcoin is a digitally traded asset, um, but it really hasn't captured the market in a way that electronic trading has or has not really traded in a way digital assets can and will trade, I think, in the future. It's interesting. I definitely want to take a look at the fixed income market and whether or not we will see, instead of further electronification of that market, digitization sort of stepping in. But let's just first go through some of those key trends that you outlined. You talk about making the illiquid liquid. And for as long as I've been covering the space, this idea that blockchain technology could bring liquidity to markets like real estate and just make it easier to transact in these traditionally more opaque and not necessarily easy markets to tap into. But people so often think when they think about tokenization, they, th they go to stocks, mm -hmm. which for me doesn't really necessarily make sense when you think about tokenizing Apple. Well, at the end of the day, Apple's incredibly liquid. U.S. capital markets are incredibly liquid. If I want to go in and make a million dollar, $10 million trade, I can do that fairly easily as an institution without much slippage and the rest. But real estate, IP, the things you outline in this piece, that's where the opportunity is from a liquidity standpoint. Yeah. So walk us through, you know, we've seen a few deals, but not necessarily anything groundbreaking. How does that develop? And it's interesting that you looked at the equities markets. I think equities markets will probably be the last thing digitized. But I do want to talk about you know how that happens. But the great thing about the real estate market right now is there is a tremendous amount of inventory that can be digitized. So why isn't that becoming 
more liquid? Why isn't there more real estate trading? It's very simple. There's not enough data provided about these assets. Talk about Apple. I can go in there and look at Apple historically and see every trade for the last 20 years. And there's a ton of data about returns. There's a ton of data about, you know, Apple's products. There is a ton of data surrounding Apple. There's a ton of data surrounding pretty much every traditional asset out there. And that data is necessary for portfolio managers and investors to make a informed decision. With real estate, there's actually a building being built right here, right? <laughs> uh, with <laughs> They're fixing estate. our conference rooms. <laughs> if, you, if you think about real estate, you know, let's take a uh, commercial building. There's not a lot of data about that commercial building. It's very finite. If you look at purchases and sales, there might have been one, if any. Um, what's going on that, in that building, you know, the utilities. It's very difficult to get data. So what really has to happen in that market is one, tokenization is just the first part of it, but providing data around that. And I think you'll see some trends in providing data. Um, people are building smart buildings, right? Smart buildings gonna be providing data. You have smart communities being built out there where you could, you know, we know how Nest works, right? We know how uh, Amazon Alexa works. You could look at what's going on in your house. That's already providing some of that data, right? Utilities and you know being able to um, make informed decisions. What portfolio managers need about need for real estate to make it more liquid. So at the end, investor might find it interesting to say, "Hi, I have a piece of a large penthouse on Fifth Avenue um, in my portfolio," but he's not really making an informed decision. He's he's buying something that's Nietzsche. Um, you know, the other issue I think that's going on with digital assets is people are leading with the whole digital asset thing and not the underlying investment. Right, you walk in and you say to a portfolio manager or any other, you know, equity investor, say, "Hey, we're digitizing these assets. They're going to be more efficient. They're going to be more transparent." But what's the return? What What am I investing in? You know, what What is this? And I don't think we've gotten to the point yet where there's a lot of really good quality investments and whether or not there's a lot of data around those investments. Data sounds a priori to the lack of liquidity. What does the digitization of a real estate asset, for instance, how does that bring more data to the table? So it's kind of a little bit like chicken and egg. So what you'll probably see in a real estate asset is it will become more freely traded and trading and bids and offers around that asset will start to provide a foundation for data, right? Any asset starts with a bid and offer. Then you'll start seeing insight about who the investor is. Then you'll start seeing insights about returns, right? So that's, that's very elementary I see, data. I see. As that starts to pick up on, on different assets, it'll start to snowball. So, you know, I've heard, you know, I've used the expression a ton of times, trickle, trickle, flood, but it's the same thing with data. Data is trickle, trickle, flood, but each piece of data can be exponentially greater than the previous piece of data. Um, but I really think it's gonna come down to, if you think about the underwriters of these assets, uh, particularly in a real estate and IP space, providing insight to that data and finding market makers to provide, be able to make markets. And then the market starts to look at that and says, ah, okay, I'm looking at this building in Amsterdam. It actually compares very well to this building in Chicago and the correlation in prices, there's a big differentiation there. So therefore I think the return on this building in Amsterdam is gonna be far greater than this building in Chicago. And if you can make an informed decision, then you could buy a piece of that, right? So I think it comes down to how the underwriters and issuers are able to provide adequate insight to the decision makers. It's interesting. We skipped over trend one, but we're not gonna sleep on that because it's another trend that mm -hmm. I find incredibly fascinating, which is just the growth of the private market relative to the stock market. Yep. And the exchange executives that I talk to um, 
and they're saying this on financial television and in financial media all the time about fixing the public market so that we can lure more companies to go public. How do you do that? Maybe you ease up regulations. Maybe you <laughs> lower the fees and the costs. When you look at the booming market for private investing, how do you see tokenization, the digitization of assets, remedying a lot of the issues we see there, like insane paper trails and mm -hmm. the inefficiencies of those marketplaces? You have to lower drag, right? So lowering drag is really you know, where the inefficiencies are. So it's a, it's a very draconian process just to invest in the singular equity, right? If you think about the access to private deals where most of the returns and most of the issues are going on right now, you know, the individual or the small investor really doesn't have access to them, right? So I think when the um, SEC actually looked to lower the threshold for uh, individual investors to access private deals, I think that was the first piece. Um, other things have, have changed in the last I'd say a few months, Schwab is actually looking at selling things in a fractionalized way, right? Mm -hmm. So using fractionalized shares in the current market, very difficult to do, but fractionalizing a digital asset, very easy to do, right? You could slice and dice a digital asset much more efficiently than you can a traditional asset. So these, these little pieces in the market that are allowing the individual investor, the small investor to access issues that they couldn't do previously, I think is gonna be widespread. Uh, it also, I think, when you're an individual investor, you really don't see the scope of other investments out there. So it's really going to come down to how these more retail and consumer facing firms offer these assets to clients. Uh, Morgan Stanley buying E-Trade, very interesting, right? Morgan Stanley is an institutional firm, right? And they have a small, you know, consumer facing uh, money management firm. Now they have access to, you know, tens of millions of E-Trade customers, how do they provide access to private deals, right? Because I really think that the private market is going to be the standard in, uh, in probably you know five or 10 years. And I think digital assets will be the gateway to provide that because the ability to offer smaller pieces of companies, smaller pieces of assets, and do it using digital assets, eliminates drag, eliminates costs, and makes it much more cost effective for these large firms to provide access to these assets to uh, individuals. Through what conduit would a E-Trade under Morgan Stanley offer access to private deals? You're talking about like a front end or? Yeah. yeah I, I would say no different than a front end that we do now. I think um, the interesting thing about digital assets and any, any other asset is, is it should be, you know, seamless and transparent to the end investor. Mm -hmm. So to an individual investor or to an institutional investor, they should be able to have the same experience whether they're buying a piece of um, the overstock dividend, mm -hmm. which will be a digital asset, or buying a, um, a, a CD, right? They mm -hmm. shouldn't care whether it's a digital asset or not. The onus is on the broker, the onus is on the custodian, the onus is on the institution to ensure that that investment is seamless to the end user. You know, if you're investing in a digital asset, you, wouldn't, you shouldn't care whether it's a digital, digital asset or not. And that was my earlier point is when a lot of these underwriters are talking to these institutions about investing in digital assets, it's don't talk about digital assets, talk about the underlying. The fact it's a digital asset should be the last piece of that conversation. We'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Cash App. Cash App has been the number one finance app on the App Store for almost two years. It was also the first major peer-to-peer -peer payments app to support Bitcoin, and it's still the fastest and easiest way to turn cash into crypto. 
Cash App now supports Bitcoin deposits in-app, so be sure to move your Bitcoin from whatever wallet you're using to Cash App. Don't have any to deposit? Cash App is also the most convenient way to instantly buy and sell Bitcoin. No more waiting five days for your ACH transfers to come through. With Cash App, you can buy Bitcoin instantly. When you're ready to take full ownership of your private keys, just use Cash App to scan an external wallet's QR code. It's really that simple. Cash App also comes with standard banking features like direct deposits and others your bank would never even consider, like Cash Card, a customizable debit card that lets you instantly save every time you use it at Lyft, Whole Foods, and places like Chick-fil-A. It's also a favorite of the Blocks analyst Steven Zhang. He saves money at Chipotle every time he gets a burrito. That keeps Steven happy, that keeps the Block happy, and that keeps the crypto world informed with the best news and research in the entire market. Download Cash App today from the App Store or Google Play, and I hope you enjoy the episode. So when you think about the market 10 years from now, or maybe five years from now, it will be one in which you have all of these different brokers who are trying to constantly differentiate from one another because of how commoditized the service is, will ultimately roll out a platform or product through which you can buy equity in a company prior to them going public in a same similar sort of way as you would buy a stock on that platform. Absolutely, yeah. I do, yeah. I do believe that is the trend, um, and I think we see that already in the market. I think most of the issues right now are, are um, private equity, and I think access to those and understanding those is really what it's going to have to come down to. The regulations are have to make sure that the customer is protected, right? Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, if you look at anything that the regulators do, it co always comes down to how do you protect the end user, right? So it's, it's not going to be the Wild West where everybody is, you know, issuing their own digital asset or issuing an asset because the, it, it's private, right? And, and circumventing the rules under Reg A, not circumventing, it was using Reg A, Reg D, Reg 144, but to do so in a way that provides adequate intelligence to the end user. And it, it goes all the way back to what I said earlier about you know providing data around these real estate assets. You have to really give them enough information to make an informed decision and it comes down to the end user to say, okay, I'm gonna build my portfolio using this, this, and this, and whether or not it's a, you know, whatever instrument the underlying instrument is, they could should be completely agnostic. How does State Street prepare for that shift in terms of the services you offer right now in a marketplace that is mostly electronic and equities 100% basically electronic, except for some of the roaming floor guys at <laughs> NYSE. How do you prepare for that shift across other, rather the digitization shift across? So great question. You know, the way we look at it is we know digitization is happening, right? We know that a portion of the market will start to move to digital assets. We don't think it'll happen in the equities market, right? So, you know, we're, we're, we're fairly comfortable that the equities market will be the equities market for the foreseeable future. But we do see that in the more um, alternative type space or the, even the private placement space, the private, mm -hmm. getting back to the private market. So how do we prepare? We, we have to figure out what services we can and can't provide and pick and choose our entry points. Um, so you know, how are we preparing today? Well, today we're working on a number of proof of concepts. We're looking at ways issues behave on a blockchain. We're looking at ways uh, customers make decisions to buy and sell digital assets. Um, we talk to our customers and most of our, you know, I, I think we talked about this last time, most of our proof of concepts are client driven. So you know, we're, we're talking to our clients and we're saying, okay, we can do this, but we probably can't do that. 
and we look at the opportunities as well. You know, there's there's parts of the business we're not doing right now. We're not an issuer of, of securities, right? We're not underwriting of securities. However, if you look at digital assets, it all begins with the issuance, right? But the issuance needs to connect to custody. Well, we're in custody. Is there a seamless transition from being a custodian to an issuer? We evaluate that, right? So that might be an opportunity for us. And you look at other things, other services that we provide. So, you know, such as pricing, right? We're great at pricing. That's you know, one of the things we do probably better than anybody. What does that look like in a digital market? And is that a service we can continue to do? And you know, one of the things we, we're doing right now is we announced the Gemini endeavor, and that's really reporting. And pricing is coming from Gemini, right? So we're using a third party to do pricing on that. So you know, we're looking at pieces of the business that we do very well, and how do we continue to do that in digital asset space? And we're looking at opportunities to get into new businesses that we are in and now and whether or not that is a, a business, you know, if, if we can seamlessly transition into that. But the final thing is we have to also say, you know what, there are areas that we'll never be able to be part of. And that's the most difficult thing to say because we don't know how the market's gonna evolve. So if you, you, know, if you pick the wrong product or service, you might be you know, left out. Um, and I think everyone in the industry is kind of wrestling with that. Let's talk about the, the Gemini Winklevoss tie-up. What does that product look like for folks who might not understand, you know, pricing and reporting? Mm -hmm. Break it down for us. It, it's very simple. So um, State Street is not a custodian, so it's not a sub-custody uh, arrangement. It's really just reporting. So our clients who have assets at State Street can now actually have State Street commingle reports on their assets being held at Gemini, Bitcoin, for example. Um, I think we started with Bitcoin and Ether as mm -hmm. the first two, um, being consolidated and report back to them. So it's very simple reporting. Right now, it is not, uh, it's strictly a pilot. We don't have any customers that are using it yet, but we've, we've discussed it with several customers. But it's also something that's not specific to Gemini. We would do it with other firms as well if, if there was client demand. So, you know, we don't really have, none of our clients are really invested in Bitcoin at this point, but if they do and they house it at Gemini, they could say, okay, I want State Street to receive reports on my assets and they receive all the insight on their Gemini holdings consolidated with their State Street holdings. So th they basically get a full picture of their financial Correct, yeah. state of affairs. And you'd be open to working with other exchanges to Absolutely. do similar pilots. Yeah, we've discussed it with several of these uh, other exchanges and it comes down to really demand and it comes down to you know just resources. And this is kind of the first public initiative that has come out of these proof of concepts that you're very secretive about right <laughs> uh, I wouldn't say secretive um, you know like any proof of concept you know you worry if you're too public about something someone uh, will steal your ID yeah yeah it's a, and you know these are you know we are working with a number of our peers and we work in I think with every one of them we're working with third parties so we're very mm -hmm. open to working with you know fintech firms that are very uh, um, prescient in you know what we're doing and there's there's no shortage of firms that want to work with us but at the end of the day we you know we, we have a business that we have to run so we have to like I said pick and choose our entry points and the Gemini kind of made kind of you know made sense because we have to see one how our customers are investing what they're investing in two and you know what insight do they want from us right and how do they price these assets so it's you know the Gemini engagement was something that didn't just happen overnight too it took it took a long time mm -hmm. to uh, mm -hmm. to uh, I would say over a year to get that up and running so that's one opportunity what are some other examples maybe you don't have to share exactly who the partners are mm -hmm. or what the product is exactly but when you look at 
possible proof of concepts, what might some of those opportunities be? Is it thinking about how can we do pricing or reporting for real estate assets on a blockchain? Um, you know, the provision of data around digital assets, I think, is really where we'll, we'll, we want to figure out some sort of way of providing that data. Because now we have the front end, right? We have the CRD front end. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what data might we be able to provide to portfolio managers? So we talk to our clients and we say, you know, we here's where tokenization is going. Here's what a tokenized asset looks like. Have you considered this? Have you, you know, have you bought any digital assets? And we did a survey a few months ago and, you know, all of our majority of our clients are looking at digital assets or, and, and think that digital assets will be part of the equation fairly shortly. So we asked them, you know, what insight do you want? So I think really the data piece of it is the one thing I'm kind of intrigued about. How do we provide data and what access can we give and who can we give access to? What I mean by that is if you looked at um, Citi and JP Morgan had both made an announcement recently that they were going to limit the amount of data or, or third-party access yeah. to their websites, uh, to their, I guess, their clients' uh, data. So to me, that's, that's very intriguing. How do we, you know... Is that something we should be considering as well? And I think from a security standpoint, obviously, that's something we're looking at very closely. But you know, data tokenization, I think, or access to data via tokenization is the one thing that I think really gets us thinking. Because we are a data intensive firm. You know, our our entire, you know, premise for you know going forward is to be able to provide institutional investors with the data that they source today. So are there better ways to do that? And the other thing I think about is um, when you think about data, the one, I guess, uh, holy grail or the, uh, the, the, the concept people try and put their arms around is, what does data as an asset look like, right? So if you think about data as an asset currently, a lot of firms have their own data, but they're not able to um, quantify it, right? I think tokenization may allow them to quantify that in a way that uh, one gives them control, but two actually allows them to put you know, some sort of value attached to their data. You know, clearly Google, has a, has a value based on the amount of data they get, right? So sure. it's not theirs. What happens when you change that paradigm and you unblock that and you give that data back to their clients and their clients could actually use that data in a way that adds value to their balance sheet? Mm -hmm. It's interesting you brought up the JP Morgan news. I noticed that as well, I think over the weekend. I think it might have a little bit to do with them wanting to squeeze out some potential upstart want to be bank competitors who offer services that allow people to take a, a look at their entire financial picture. I use Wealthfront and mm -hmm. it's linked up to Chase, right? Oh, okay. So I can see my checking account and my savings and whatever have you. And I got a little nervous. I was like, are they going to cut that out? Am I going to have to figure something else out? But in any, in any case, the other opportunity lies in the fund management space. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned in the piece a number of big name companies that most of our listeners will be familiar with. Franklin Templeton, Vanguard, Wisdom Tree are all working on initiatives, you say, to digitize their operations, basically creating tokenized ETFs that then represent a basket of stocks mm -hmm. and equities or whatever have you. How does State Street fit into that picture? We talked about how you worked with the Winklevoss on mm -hmm. reporting. If you were to be working on a digitized ETF with Vanguard, where do you sit in that process? So let me say, those are all public initiatives. So there's, yeah. you know, I'm not saying you know who we're working with or what we're working on, but I think you know as um, one of the premier ETF service providers, it's it's a space that we're looking 
very intensely at. So the services we provide now in an ETF wrapper should be no different than the services we pro provide in a traditional wrapper. So it's trying to understand how do we provide those services in a digital wrapper. So there's a lot of technology that goes into that, figuring out how an ETF is built and then taking it and putting it to the digital wrapper and then allowing that digital wrapper to trade freely on you know, a, uh, I guess a digital exchange like a T-Zero or a Coinbase. But at the end of the day, the, the, the end piece, the ETF piece itself, should be completely transparent to the end user, no different than if you had a traditional ETF. So we're, we are actually looking at that very closely, and it's something we find might be one of the first areas that you'll, you'll see a digital asset come out. And when you know, large firms like that are very public about their initiatives, I think there's a lot of going on behind the scenes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, I mean, obviously, the, the rise of passive has just created, mm -hmm. you know, a, f a fervor around ETFs, and that's totally changed the dynamic of the market. How fast do you think this is going to happen? Um, and what will be the impacts for stocks that are maybe a part of a certain ETF that gets digitized or not? Yeah, so the you know the ETF as a digitized asset doesn't make it any more liquid, right? So that's really not a liquid play, but it really comes down to the efficiencies and, and costs of that. So it, I believe it's much cheaper to do a, a digital asset um, around an ETF wrapper than it is to do a traditional asset. So I think the fees and costs associated with that will probably you know allow firms to be more efficient and obviously more uh, more competitive in that space. So it will lead to a further compression of fees for... Probably, yeah, yeah, I would see that. And, I, and that's like anything else that becomes, you know, um, scalable, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it comes down to if it if it's going to work for one ETF, then it's going to work for pretty much all ETFs. And, you know, that's the beauty of blockchain technology. If it's doable and it's scalable, then it, it takes off. Mm -hmm. What are the impediments to getting something like that off the ground? Digital asset itself or, or the ETF piece? The ETF piece. Um, well, it really comes down to, you know, I guess there's a lot of regulation around it because mm -hmm. it is a digital asset. It has to be custodied, right? So there's that part of it. So um, the technology has probably been proven um, about digital assets and how digital assets trade. So I don't think that's really the impediment. Um, how you interact with an AP, right? Mm -hmm. How do you interact with a, uh, how do the clients interact? How do the instructions go? Um, how does pricing work? Uh, a digital price versus a traditional price, right? So there's a lot of... Um, pieces that go into it and you know you have creation redemption of the ETF then you have creation and destruction of a token right so mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a couple of added pieces that go into that but it's mm -hmm. um, it's not overwhelming and the technology probably should be is sufficient enough to overcome some of those impediments but it's just removing some of the some of that drag to do that mm -hmm. so we talked about potential impact digitization can have on ETFs making the illiquid liquid by in one part, mm -hmm. the digitization itself, but also the added access to data that we get from that. You talked about how with digital assets it's easier to, and this is a direct quote, strip out the dividends and voting rights of a stock and trade those elements separately. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? So there is a um, discussion around shorting stock. Right, and uh, this was the big Patrick Byrne thing. If yeah, everybody yeah, remembers so. why they got into the blockchain scene. They were and, and very upset of, about the short sellers. Short selling. One of the underlying 
things he you know it said was if you well no it was actually not Patrick Burpinoski the, the government pension fund of Japan yeah. uh, got out of shorting um, or pro, or lending of securities and the discussion was around you know who maintains voting rights and with a digital asset you could pretty much create a digital asset you know you either have a traditional asset where you you create a, another asset that has the exact same returns and without the voting rights attached to it. Mm -hmm. um, you could create a digital asset that doesn't have uh, the dividend stream. You could sell the dividend stream as a separate asset. So the ability to, and this is not just unique to, to equities, you could do that with pretty much any asset and have a smart contract attached to it. So you could have a preferred stock that is convertible or has warrants or something attached to something completely esoteric. So the, the beauty of a digital asset, it, it doesn't limit what you can put into it. So if you could take a an equity and strip out the voting rights and sell the voting rights separately or lend those securities without voting rights, um, it might be more attractive for firms to, or might make firms more um, comfortable with lending securities out. And it might even make companies themselves more comfortable with being in the public market. It's fascinating when we think about what we've tried to do to get companies to go public, whether it's regulations like Reg A Plus or the Jobs Act, which you know, was aimed at fixing some of those things. Regulation can only go so far, mm -hmm. and then technology plays another part. And when you have them both kind of going in the same direction or attempting to go in the same direction, then you have the perfect recipe for innovation. Yeah, and you know, digital assets are, you know, allow you to do things that we can't do in the current markets. So Under Armour, for example, Under Armour has two they have mm -hmm. voting rights and non-voting rights. And then if you look at any firm that has numerous preferred stocks, right? So, you know, a, a, single, um, a single asset could, you know, a single digit asset could have, you know, strip out different preferred type of returns, right? So you could have a single digital asset with, you know, multiple returns that could be stripped out. So that's where you start to see the efficiencies. So I think it really comes down to how you, how issuers will look at using digital assets as opposed to having to do the very draconian of, you know, if I have to do a preferred stock, now I have to do a whole new underwriting. Mm -hmm. um, but if you have something embedded in there that could be pulled out at any given point, I think that makes it much more efficient and much more attractive. Super interesting. Just the level of flexibility that we have from leveraging smart contracts and Absolutely, blockchain yeah. technology. Looking forward for the rest of 2020, mm -hmm. I'm sure you guys got some things cooking up your sleeve, so to speak. What are you most excited about? Um, I would just say I'm, I, I'm kind of excited about what's happening to Mark with other firms right now. So if you look at Paxos, right, the Paxos is their live. Um, I believe they announced uh, was Credit Suisse and Instant had actually just uh, started yeah. using them. So I'm, I'm very excited about that. Um, extremely excited about um, Hester Pierce proposal around digital assets and her pilot that she wants to uh, put out there. Um, I'm excited about the <laughs> Steve Mnuchin uh, saying that there will be some blockchain um, uh, regulations or guidance coming out of the White House so or the Treasury Department. So that that to me is kind of like, okay, we're starting to reach what will ultimately be a tipping point. So I think regulation clarity is going to be something we really kind of get, and that is going to get the institution's attention. And I think we're also starting to see a tipping point with underwriting. I think we're moving away from you know just real estate and IP, and I think we're getting the attention of uh, certainly, you know, it could mention the overstock dividend, but I think other issuers are, are starting to understand or have the conversations around what it means to have a digital asset to issue maybe a, um, you know, a bond on the blockchain. And we've had several banks do that. So 
I kind of think that if you're going to look at, you know, the last four or five years, and we talked about this earlier, mm -hmm. you know, if I was getting into digital assets four or five years ago, which I did, um, mm -hmm. probably was the wrong time. I think right now the opportunity is is there. I think the ability for firms to come up with some really good solutions and ideas are there. I think um, if you look at firms like State Street and my peers in the industry, we're starting to get a little more comfortable about where the industry is going and picking and choosing our entry and exit points. And you know, I kind of think that it'll all come down to once quality starts to come into the market for some of these digital is issues, then I think you'll start to see that trickling a little, pick up a little bit more. The Paxos thing is interesting, um, and the fact that you have a firm like Credit Suisse getting involved shows that it's serious. It's limited still mm -hmm. in terms of the number of shares that can be exchanged and then settled directly onto the blockchain for that instant settlement. Yep. Uh, might be worth getting into just because it's so fascinating um, quickly, and we can cut it out if, if the episode's too long or if we find out it's not that interesting. But... Um, I mean, the way the, the way it currently works is, you know, right, you know, the money, the money going from the seller to the buyer, mm -hmm. right, or rather the buyer to the seller is get stuck in the, the plumbing for two days. Yeah. Right? You have instructions, settle at DTC. Yep. Mm -hmm. And I mean, and there's this weird dichotomy, right, where you have trades settling in, in milliseconds, almost instantaneously executing in milliseconds, but then getting jammed up in the pipes for mm -hmm. so long here's a fix yep but if it's so easy then that's my question if it, if it, if it works why aren't we moving over um we don't know if it's scalable yet yeah. right and i think that's the real question is it scalable to a, to an entire market it fixes a lot of things in the market and immediate access to funds um creates instantaneous opportunity Having three-day access to funds is three-day, you know, three-day yeah. delay. Um, and if you think about the way transition management works, and it, it, you know, the, I was at ITG and LiquidNet. Um, transition management was something we loved because transition management meant millions and millions of shares would be moving from one manager to another. That meant moving out of fixed income, moving out of various equities. Um, and that was a very long and prolonged process. Some of these transitions took days, yeah. aside from um, the DVP issues. But if a fixed income asset trades the same way as, a, as an equity asset, right, you could more seamlessly move between investments. And I think the opportunity for portfolios to be dynamic and for money managers to access opportunities more quickly in the market is going to be a profound change. I think for the entire capital markets industry, and I'm not just talking about, you know, the uh, the illiquid ones moving into into uh, real estate and IP, but just for traditional assets, being able to move out of one asset class into another asset class seamlessly, immediately, it's a game changer. Yeah. Well, Paxos certainly seems to think so as well. Yeah. Jay, thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, this is a great conversation and our second twofer following the great Kristen Smith who also joined us twice on the show Jay thank you so much thank you guys thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Scoop we hope you tune in next time and don't forget to subscribe and favorite wherever you listen to your podcasts